This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Spurs get a point at Stamford Bridge in controversial circumstances. Are you Team Tuchel or Team Conte? We'll discuss the latest battle at the bridge. We'll also be talking about the Brentford Community Stadium where Manchester United, frankly speaking, didn't show up. How big a result is that? Not just for Manchester United and their woes, but for an ever-improving Brentford side. We'll also be speaking about Nottingham Forest who hosted their first Premier League match for 23 years. We'll hear from Matt Dickinson about his new book on 1999 and Manchester United. And we'll also be asking you for your favourite assists. This is The Game. Hello again, welcome back to The Game. I'm Hugh Wozencroft alongside Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. after a pretty uneventful weekend of uh, Premier League action. <laughs> I'm only jesting, obviously. It was absolutely incredible. Pete Barclays, I think, is what they call it. Inject it, inject it, inject it. Those are all the memes, right? It was unbelievable. And we've got to start at Stamford Bridge, I think, just about edged it over the Brentford Community Stadium. Only, but, well, maybe because it was just... It's Monday <laughs> morning. Because you really want to. It was... It's, it, it's <laughs> Monday morning. It's what the kids are talking about, right? We'll come to events uh, on Saturday afternoon very, very shortly. I've already been told that I'm in a grumpy mood this morning. My reaction to events uh, with a two-all draw, Spurs, Harry Kane-ish with a with a 96-minute equaliser. I still think it was a Reese James own goal. So you get an indication of the, the sort of mood I'm in today, all right? Spurs were meant to be sending a message in this game, Okay. And they didn't send a message. I don't care if they drew to all. I don't care how happy their fans were. I don't care. I I don't care. All I saw in this game was a Tottenham Hotspur team who ain't going to get close to winning a Premier League title. We're going to come to all of the arguments with Tuchel and Conte in a bit. Let's start with the football. Tottenham were outplayed. In my opinion. And that is why they had every right to celebrate you. Because the (laughs) Spurs of old would play pretty football and lose and stand around looking at the sky thinking, how did that happen? We're such an elegant team and we've got Harry Kane. Now they can play boring football, be outclassed, be outplayed, not look terribly aesthetically pleasing, somehow, somehow ride the wave of many, many decisions that went their way that shouldn't have and suddenly find themselves in the position of grabbing a point at the death that will feel like a win and don't you dare pretend you haven't felt like a win isn't a win but it's a draw and it feels like a win and you know a draw can feel like a defeat if it's taken away from you that's the way football is and you should celebrate the fact that it's a complex emotional situation so I think wow they're not flaky they can play beautiful and get the draw that they didn't deserve which is like a win getting a draw you don't deserve I've actually I actually think you've um, you've given them too much credit in terms of their performance by what you just said there. I haven't given not, them any credit. Not aesthetically pleasing. No, that, that was a, that was much better than they actually played, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. They were barely in the game, Alison. Um, listen, they scored a couple of goals, fine, but the question was what message did they send to the rest of the Premier League? They're nasty. They've got a nasty edge now, and that's new. They've got they, content. Pulled, they pulled the hair of people with lots indeed. of lovely hair. No one's, one wants to condone that, but it, um, you know, Romero's little little battle with uh, with Havertz as well was was kind of box office obviously on the touchline that was box office they've got look you're right they're absolutely absolutely right they were outplayed for large swathes of the game Richarlison came on and although that also kind of made created a bit of a was weakness was involved in both of the goals well done Tom yeah <laughs> I thought you'd be delayed with that <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we know what he's like as well we you know I think he would have been seething on the touchline you know 
chomping a bit to get on. And uh, and yet he came running on the pitch as though he had North London pumping through his veins, as though that was all he'd ever wanted in his life was to represent the team in white. It was, it was, it, I mean, these are qualities that Spurs have not had. Signing new players who act like they have joined the elite and are beyond excited to be part of it. I think what we learned is you're right they're not at the level to be competing for the Premier League title but they really want to be and that's a change as well I think it's like you know although we're maybe not quite there yet we're all, we want to be there and we're, you I know, think this we're is doing everything we can this to is, be there. This is bias commentary because almost any other team, if they had come away from Stamford Bridge, that's the best I've seen Chelsea play for quite some time, that's I have to well. say. Yeah. To come away from Stamford Bridge with a point when it's not clicked for you, you know you can click because in the previous match you did click and got lots of praise. To come away from Stamford Bridge with that atmosphere, being outplayed, trying to integrate new signings, getting it at the death that speaks to me of a team that isn't going to win the title but they're going to finish top four so you would have been feeling the same way if Liverpool had played like that and got that result I don't know what it feels like to be a fan of a team that are flaky so I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> Tom Clark, what message did Spurs send well you can probably read it on the cover of the game uh, pull out today and I'm going to say that because I came up with the headline <laughs> not so Spursy anymore Um <laughs> Yeah, and I'm going to give Tony Cascarino full credit because I was also ghostwriting his column yesterday and he kind of said that what Alison said which is we we can flip this conversation on its head and say Chelsea were superb that was absolutely brilliant I think and Thomas Tuchel deserves a lot of credit for what was and would have been hailed as a tactical masterclass had they seen that uh, victory out but Tottenham showed all those qualities that Alison's talked about and they're not qualities that they've shown before under even under Pochettino so and Tony Cascarino's point was that at this stage in the season that kind of a performance when you've got players coming off the bench and looking like it's the most important game of their lives when you've got Yves Basuma fist pumping to the fans at the end of the game you're only at the start of the season but that can be a really unifying factor for a group of players some of whom are only new new teammates so I think that's that's the message it sends not so Spursy anymore I can't have it it was embarrassing <laughs> the end of the game was embarrassing I know, listen, it's a huge game for all Spurs fans. It's Chelsea away from home, one win in 30 years. So, you know, a draw, why why not celebrate it like it's a win? I didn't get it. Yves Basuma's second game for Spurs, and he's there like Jurgen Klopp, punching to the Spurs fans. It's a great bit of cheering, PR. Come on. Cheering his every punch as if they won PR. the game. Embarrassing. Harry Kane's post-match interview, he called it a winner. You're meant to be a team capable of winning the Premier League. That's all. No, the, no, that who's, is who's all, that? Who says that? That is all. The, the conversation has been Spurs can challenge. Is it? Has it not been? No, no it's it's so they can get closer and yes, it could be, exactly. should be like comfortably oh, okay, right, rather well, than sneaking in, in, in the last in day. The, in that case, since no one fancies Tottenham and doesn't think they're that good then I take it all back no come on let's not let's not overspin this we had a conversation on Thursday's podcast talking about this game and one genius I can't remember who it was it might have been me said that Chelsea will probably show what a superior team they are and maybe win the game 2-1 or maybe it'll be a draw and they did that so you know and Tottenham got a point and that that is showing Richarlison got minutes yeah and he stood in front of the (laughs) stood in front of the keeper for the first goal and he was jumping in the air with Kane for the second as well huge huge impact already seeing it no but like I think you can have Tottenham improving in various ways that we've talked about 
character um, spirit fight and be seen as Alison said as a top four not certainty yet obviously it's very early days but seen as that's the minimum real, expectation. Uh, yeah a minimum expectation and that is an incremental growth on what they were at last season if Spurs had shown that character and tenacity in the original Battle of the Bridge they would have won the title I'm not sure good point I agree they might have got closer to winning the title yeah obviously they would but I think I think Leicester still would have won it was that the same season yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the Battle of the Bridge. That's I, the original I, I, Battle I still, of the Bridge. I still think Leicester would have got over the line. No? Ah, Spurs yeah. through that way. Okay. Um, what about Chelsea? What about Chelsea? What message did they send? Tom? Superb. Thomas Tuchel. <laughs> I mean, like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being very silly here, but we did talk about it on Thursday's show that as much as Antonio Conte is being praised for being a brilliant coach and isn't he fantastic, look what he's done. I think... Tuchel deserves so much credit for a kind of slightly turbulent summer lots of change off the pitch for Chelsea still bringing in new players I, that was absolutely brilliant they completely dominated Tottenham they dominated in midfield which is something that we discussed on Thursday's show I thought they pretty much nullified Son and Kane with the way that they, they defended both in terms of just not just the back three but the way in which the wing back slotted back in and made it a back five quite a lot of the time and suffocated that space in which Kane and Son like to operate I thought Koulibaly, as James Gearbrandt's written this morning, was superb. I think for, for Chelsea, the only thing is that they didn't win the game. In terms of going ahead this season, my expectations for Chelsea, when you know, you're know you already throwing your predictions out the window, in the prediction show we were talking about, oh God, they might struggle to finish in the top four. They now look like that third place team again already. And that's incredibly impressive, I think. You know, I agree. I th- it was it was the best I've seen Chelsea in a long, long time, and a big part of that was was in goal Kante, and so to see him like being shot in the hamstring towards the end was an enormous blow. Um, but the just the energy and sort of dynamism, and as Tom said, the way they kind of the way they pressed and bit into the tackle, and then Conor Gallagher came on and did the same. He's he's like he's like a mini Mason Mount, really, isn't he? It's like a carbon copy, and I think we'll see him playing soon um, from the start. And Havertz looked like he's got a bit of bite, you know. He's like it's not really what we thought he was when he first came. It's a new jarhead haircut, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, he was he was right up for it. He kind of ran, ran into Romero and barged into him. It was great. And every manager must be coveting <laughs> Reese James. I mean, th- yeah. th- honestly, eight. Hey, the energy he showed but his job was uh, to man mark Son and occasionally man mark Harry Kane I mean what imagine being in a team meeting and you're told that's your job and then the minute Tuchel said okay I'm giving you freedom to to belt down the wing and be more attacking almost instantly he scores a goal and uh, affects the game completely he was clearly the man of the match I thought the thing you know Sort of counterpoint to that is that Conte was praised for bringing on Richarlison and you know mixing up. He stretched the play and gave gave Spurs a bit more space, but Ben Davis was left like woefully uh, exposed on the mm. left. And you saw Son; it was Son chasing Rhys James back when he ran down that ran down the line and whipped in the cross for Havertz and missed a sitter. You thought oh, that's not going to work, and then he scored a few minutes later from again because there was far too much space. So like. I'm not sure that was the the kind of masterstroke that everyone everyone painted out to put on Richarlison. Put Richarlison on, but you can't have Son doing the job of, of basically of a left wing back. Yeah. So you know, although it it did a lot for for Tottenham to kind of you know impose themselves in the game, it also left a gaping hole. The, the, the one thing that I noticed, and I thought Chelsea were absolutely brilliant, was um was really the front three 
Um, Havertz, you cannot hang your hat on him as good as he played to score you the goals to win you these these games. Um, I thought he played really, really well. We had this conversation last year, well, in fact, earlier this year about Lukaku going out on loan. I haven't felt, and I don't think Chelsea feel, that Havertz is going to score them the goals that they need to chat, really challenge in, in any of their their competitions this season. Hence the Abamyang thing. I do think Abamyang is a very different type of player to Havertz. And there's going to be some sort of change there in the way that they play if Aubameyang does come into the club. Um, because Havertz link-up plays, just it's totally different to the way that Aubameyang wants to play. And it's it's worked for Chelsea, you know, largely last season with Havertz there, even though he doesn't score the goals. And this is what I mean. It's just about that goal-scoring element because I still think he's been excellent. But the other thing that I noticed is, you know, Sterling is sort of an inside forward with wing-backs. And I know we've seen him play it for England. We know with England, he is not the same Raheem Sterling that he was at Manchester City, as good as a player he is, but this isn't international football. And really, a player of his quality should be playing in their best position slash in their best role every single week. And as an inside forward with a wing back overlapping, that is not where you want Raheem Sterling. I, I agree in terms of the positional thing. I come back to something that we all discussed um, and Gregor and I were making the point in the pre- preview show is that Sterling to me is a player about relationships on the pitch with teammates and it's obviously very early for that and I agree with you Hugh there are a few moments where there was a moment in um, the second half where he was kind of one-on-one on the edge of the box and tried to kind of take on Tottenham defender got tackled and I was like that exactly looks like what happens for England he kind of it, it, it's do it yourself Otherwise, you're not going to kind of get the lovely, intricate passing that you get for Manchester City, which results in a tap-in at the back post. But that's the challenge for Tuchel now, is to try and make sure that Sterling can develop those relationships. The other option is to bring in a striker like Aubameyang, but then you're, you're working on again to change it again, to change the system, to change the style again. I think we have to give five or six games to see whether Sterling can develop those relationships with the likes of Havertz you know I, it just there was a point in the first half as well where the ball just got swung in from the right and it was Sterling against two defenders you know fighting for a header and you're just like that, that's not going to work you can't play that way to Raheem Sterling you know physically he's just not going to be able to do it so they do need to change something going forward Chelsea I think on another day maybe with a Lukaku type they probably win that game yeah yeah you could kind of draw a parallel with Manchester City last season, but the thing that they had was so many players that you could that shared out the goals. There's so many players even behind the front three that that were chipping in with goals. You don't really see that with not certainly with the Chelsea starting lineup there. Reese James will, you know, Silva and Koulibaly might get a few from set plays, but, but this is the thing: the midfielders won't. The way that they are playing now, space in behind for the forwards to run into, there's none. Like they, they they dominated the game against Tottenham the way that you'd expect them to dominate a lot of games you know probably not against Spurs but against teams lower down the league in that they were able to have those Spurs defenders right back in their penalty area right on the edge of the box no space for Raheem Sterling to make a run off the wing into that space behind that he loves to do Aubameyang loves to run into space behind you're sitting there thinking you know the best part of those two players games we don't know if Aubameyang's going to go to Chelsea looks likely but is not the way that Thomas Tuchel likes to play. So how's he going to get the best out of them? That was a concern for me watching that game. And I agree with all of you, Chelsea were better than I've seen them for a long, long time. Do you do you think, you, when you went to bed on Sunday night, that Raheem Sterling was frustrated or disappointed? Because I thought he looked very comfortable, very at home. I thought he looked happier than I've seen him for a while playing football. I think he likes the vibe at Chelsea. And I think he'll happily do whatever's required. And... 
yeah, he should have scored and didn't score. But, but my, other, my, other than that, but my I think, point I think, is not about his happiness. It's about no, his but a happy productivity. Raheem Sterling is 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 something anyone wants in their squad, isn't it? Yeah, but when we reach the end of the season and Raheem Sterling might have seven goals and eight assists, and everyone's saying he's not the Sterling that he was at Manchester City, he might not be happy then. It's all about him. You know, footballers are going to be happy, especially in his position, scoring and assisting and having a real effect on the game. And all I'm saying is it didn't look like watching Chelsea play how they played that he's going to have the same effect on football matches that he did when he was playing for Pep at Manchester City. That's I think it's too early to say that. Personally. Yeah. I think he was good. He was really Gotta good. Got to say something. They played me. He, <laughs> he was really good against Everton. He was the best player, really, I thought. You know, I agree with Alison. I think he's, he's someone who you can play several roles and I think he's... He's pleased he's going to be kind of a bit more of a main man now at City as well. Yeah. Similar, okay. similar to some of the other transfers we've seen this summer. How much did we enjoy Tuchel versus Conte during the match, at the end of the match? Did anyone think it was a little bit beneath two managers of such esteem? I might as well start with you, Alison. Well, I can offer a bit of insight here, actually, because Tuchel said, he. I mean, he admits, you know, passions were high, both... Both managers were, you know, on that level. But he said he grabbed hold of his hand in the handshake because he didn't make eye contact and he felt in the heat of the moment that was rude. Well, having been at an awful lot of Antonio Conte press conferences, he does not look you in the eye. He never looks you in the eye. He looks around your head, around your head, at your knees, at your toes, something on the horizon. He's not an <laughs> eye contact person. He does that thing where he... He smiles and his eyes twinkle and he looks engaging, but he doesn't actually look at you. So he, it was not an insult. It's just the way he is. Okay. Did you enjoy the? Oh, end I of the enjoyed game? it enormously. But <laughs> it was it was there was no need for Tuchel to be quite so angry. But I mean, Mark Hughes used to always do that. Remember, Mark Hughes had so many spats on the touchline because <laughs> with handshake spats, basically. Yeah. And it was often that. That was often. But there was a hand. I mean, there was a handshake. I mean, that's the there point. Was. Often we get crossed because they don't. They don't do it at all. They don't shake hands, and that's yeah. ridiculous because it isn't war; it is sport. So you must shake hands. Look, they it was box office stuff. Let's yeah. be honest. Do we do we do do we like it? Yes, we love it. We love it. And but you know, I even like Conte at the end saying saying, look. We want to kill our opponent in the right way. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they want to. If we don't, they'll kill us. Yeah. You know, like that's deeply sort of embedded in the psyche of these top, like managers who, who do anything they can to win. So you, know, you just saw that spilling out. Yeah, I just thought celebrate like Conte celebrating towards two. It's not classy, but it's great to watch. At one all <laughs> with like how long to go? He was just a bit, you know, and then Tuchel running down the touch. Oh come on, guys! But he will. But honestly, Hugh, you're missing it. He will build on the character they showed in that match. They, they will, yeah, they will use what they achieved in that game to see them through all sorts of sticky moments to come. Yeah, he's, he's back at his normal club, and you've got Aspilicueta coming up nearly like like the two of them were getting pulled apart at the end. You know, he's very much a Tottenham man now. And I think in terms of Alisson talking about Conte building on it for Tottenham, I think this was a little bit of a like rebirth for Tuchel as well in terms of Chelsea and everything that they've gone yeah. through, lots of player changes as well. We've talked and seemingly wrongly about, oh, is it kind of all going to unravel? Like, this felt like, a no, he's really got them tactically going and, my God, he's up for it. And I actually disagree with Alisson. I think he had every right to be as angry as he was and his 
post-match uh, chat with Sky afterwards was an absolute masterclass in pettiness. I absolutely <laughs> loved it in terms of the sass that he showed. That was far more entertaining to me than any of the spats on the touchline. No, line. I'm not saying he wasn't right to be cross. I'm saying he was wrong to pick on the eye contact thing. Everything else he had the right to be cross about. Fine. You happy with that? Or? Yeah, just about. I'll just make sure next time I shake hands with Alison where her eyes go. Uh, speaking of his post-match comments, Thomas Tuchel, he's going to be in a bit of hot water, isn't he? He suggested that maybe it would be better if Anthony Taylor didn't referee Chelsea matches anymore. Um, I just checked the petition. It's gone past 87,000. Uh, the Chelsea fans not happy with Anthony Taylor. Well, it's all part of Barclays, isn't it? Petitions. It's all part of the love of the... This is why it's the best league in the world, right? For petitions. I thought Anthony Taylor had a particularly bad game. I don't think he was helped at the end of the game by VAR. I thought some of his decision, his decisions were appalling. There was one that particularly infuriated me, um, which actually led to the whole scenario. The free kick in the corner... I know this wasn't even one of the big decisions where Harry Kane just nudged it past Reese James and then threw himself to the ground, which was a clear as a, as day a dive as you oh, will ever, nonsense. ever see, ever, ever see. Nonsense. Missed the Benton Kerr foul. Awful decision. VAR. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. VAR. I can't even blame Anthony Taylor for this one. How on earth do you not ask the on-field referee to look at the the how can you not I don't even care if you give it or not are you telling me there was a, literally not enough there <laughs> to ask the on-field referee I think you need to look at that because we all saw Romero try and pull Mark Kukurea's head off we all saw it it was there it was clear that was clear alright so all I'm saying is where's the bar are you telling me that what, what, what did he need to do for you to ask the, in that situation what does Romero need to do to Kukurea for you to send Anthony Taylor over does he need to swing from his hair what does he need to do what does he need to do I actually I couldn't believe that you wouldn't I, I don't care if it would have changed the game or not but what is the point of VAR? I've said it so many times on the podcast. VAR light will not work. There's, there's, what, what's, what percentage does it need to be? 5% violent conduct? 25%? 50% before you say you should have a look? Not even give the decision. Have a look. But they don't want them to do that anymore. You, if the, if, that, if, that's if the, VAR light. If the official on the pitch is saying, and we don't know what they're saying to each other, but he's probably, probably asked, did you see that? And he's saying, yeah, yeah, it was a bit handbags. You're not going to make him stroll over to the monitor to watch himself interpret something the same way because it slows the game down. We're trying to speed well, things up, speed things up and not re-referee. It wasn't. There's no way they thought that. All they thought was, we don't want to make a big decision at this point in the game of such high magnitude. So we're just going to not get involved. They didn't think they seen... They, didn't, they weren't sitting around going... I can't see anything there. They all saw him pull the hair. They just went, nah. nah. It looked, the referee was right in front of it. Let's just... The game's almost done. Let's just get out of here. That, they honestly thought it wasn't going to make a difference. They didn't want to get involved. They are getting paid to do absolutely nothing. The whole point of them being there is to make sure we get to the right decisions. Get the referee over to the screen and make sure you get the right decision because there was... Are, you, are we going to sit around and say there was nothing there? No, there because, nothing? because it Alison, could have you, been... No, it could have been a yellow card and that's not what VAR is there to do. It could have been a red card, which is what it's there to do. Yeah, but if it's not a red card, you don't stop, you don't stop could, the game. You, you, tell, don't, you don't re, you telling replay me the game for something is, that isn't a red card. But is there no chance it was a red card? Absolutely 0% red. 
It was a red for me. Oh, okay. But if you're Gregor, if you're not giving a red, you can't do anything. Zero percent red. We all think it's clear cut, but there's a chance that they don't. Just like you said. Reese James went over and Harry Kane dived. I absolutely, categorically disagree with you there. Harry Kane was smart. Reese James was naive. It's a foul. So there's a chance. It's not like. But that's different. I can understand that. It's not like a two foot tackle. It's weird. It's not something you see every day. I understand that. But that's a a free kick. Hundreds of them a game. Someone's hair being pulled. It's weird. If you're. If you're Most a, people don't have hair long enough to be pulled as well. Listen, as bushy, as, as, uh, as easily grabbable. Oh, which reminds me, <laughs> I've only just thought about this. I spent the whole game saying, well, if I was his manager, Cucurella's manager, I would not allow him to run around the pitch bobbing away like that with his hair. And um, because I have similar, I mean, not similar, but I, have, I, have, I have as much hair. Yes. And when I play football, played, I don't play anymore. When I play football, I put it back. I put it back, and I would insist if I was a manager that every player with lots of hair puts it back. It, yeah, impedes, you your, it impedes your peripheral vision. Rose. It's very irritating to watch. So I can <laughs> see why it's really tempting to pull it. I mean, it's like brings out all the sort of childish instincts to go behind the girl in the class with the pigtails and go yank, yank, yank. It's it, it, not. We were discussing this. Would not be discussing this if he had his he hair, didn't put his hair in a man bun. Why doesn't he put it in a man bun? Who was well, shave doesn't it off? like the man bun? Speaking as someone who grew their hair very long yeah, that during was a bad lockdown. Man yeah, but I, exactly. And I didn't wear it in a man bun that often. I kept it down because it was a lesser of two evils. The one I mean, thing I'll say in favour of Erling Haaland. If I'll say one thing in favour of Erling Haaland, he's prepared to look a bit naff with his ponytail man bun thing. His barnet looks it's horrendous stops, either way. It stops him from it affecting his game and this is absolute proof why you should tie your hair back properly who, if you've got lots of it who was it pulled David Luiz's hair what game there was a couple there was also the the brilliant Van thing Gaal. that I was Someone reminded of this Fellaini, Fellaini. Fellaini. Van Gaal's post-match after Fellaini got the hair pulled where he talked about sex masochism that was a real uh, <laughs> highlight of his tenure at times with Manchester but there was a retrospective red for that was yes, there? Yeah, was. there was. Yeah. Listen, you can't pull someone's hair. No. How, it, I'm look, sorry. I think we've talked Greg, enough. We've no, talked I, enough. I, I'm, moving no, on from here. I'm moving on from this. But, but seriously, I don't see how anyone can say that the VAR official shouldn't have asked Anthony Taylor to look at the screen. I agree with you. There's but absolutely I, no, no way. It was odd. It's an it's absolute dereliction of duty. Don't go in the VAR booth. Don't watch the game if you don't want to make a decision and if you don't want to get involved. No, you, but it. you can. What you cannot do is say what is what you're asking for. They cannot say to the referee, "Go and look at that again." All they can do is to say that you've missed a definite red card offence, and that's the end of it. That's all they're supposed to be doing. You can't re- keep re-refereeing you. you it's all right. It's fine. We're gonna. It's all right, guys. Don't worry. Yeah. We've done a big chunk on Chelsea, and we're going to calm Hugh down by moving on to <laughs> Brentford for Manchester United. Just before Hill. we do, given that you uh, ghosted Tony's. Excellent column mm. this weekend. Can we just briefly discuss the fact that yes. he was invited on to Cirque du, Cirque du Soleil? Yes. <laughs> he was writing about Tony Adams on uh, Strictly Come Dancing. So the next time Tony's on, we must ask him yeah, about his invitation ask him. on to Cirque du Soleil. Okay. Well, that's the beauty of working with Tony Cascarino is that you can be talking yeah. about the intricacies of the game of football and then he throws that kind of curveball in. What was so the yeah. line? Yes, yeah, I, I can see myself in a leopard, in leopard, in leopard, a leopard leotard. Oh, we're all thinking, we really want to see that. Absolutely. I really want absolutely. to see that. Right, OK. <laughs> Okay, um, listen, I can tell you now, I can promise you now, I am less irate about Manchester United's result against Thank Brentford God for that. than I am about the end of that Chelsea match. So me being a much more relaxed Hugh Wisencroft is up next on the game. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Brentford Community Stadium was bouncing on Saturday evening as Brentford beat Manchester United 4-0. All the goals coming in the first half. Eric Ten Hag becomes the first United manager to lose their first two games since John Chapman in 1921. Uh, it was also Brentford's first league win over Manchester United for 86 years, so one to savour. For many people, though, it was a new low for United. Seven straight away Premier League defeats, four on the bounce for them. Alison, you were there. Before we slate Manchester United, excellent from Brentford. I, I honestly haven't had that much fun at a stadium. I don't know, maybe ever. Because when I'm watching Liverpool, there's always that slight nervousness. But when you're not invested romantically in a team, but just admire them and they do what they did. Everything about it was, from talking about Brentford now, was at, I mean, spot on, tactically prepared beautifully, set up beautifully. Even at the end, when... Tom, um, Thomas Frank took the team around the stadium in a very, very slow lap of honour. It it could be possible, as we've been talking about people over-celebrating things, you could have thought, nah, it's getting a little sickly sweet now. It's just one game in the season. It, it Somehow he pulled it off that it did not feel like an overreaction. And when I asked him about it afterwards, he said there was just so much joy. I just wanted to do something with it and feel it and make sure everyone was connected and it was, it was just absolutely absolutely splendid day out the other thing I'd just like to say on Brentford before we undoubtedly move on is that it, like Alison said in terms of the tactics of that match but everything they do just makes sense and that is just such a contrast with Manchester United when you look at the signings young Aaron Hickey is a wing fullback um, very very talented player bringing him in Contrast that with Ben Mee, experienced Premier League centre-half who fits the bill of being strong from set-pieces and throw-ins and in the air. You, you lose Christian Eriksen, what do you go and do? You sign Mikel Damsgaard, the younger, arguably with more potential and a longer career ahead of him. It all just makes sense and you could see that on the pitch. And that's why, yes, it's obviously hugely shocking for them to beat Manchester United. But actually, when you break it down, it's not that surprising, really. They are everything that Man United aren't as a football club. United, they are, they are, there's a vision that everyone's sort of invested in and they have a strategy and everyone's everyone's on the same page entirely. I did a preview for this game and I went to the I went to Thomas Frank's press conference on Friday and like he's he's so like emotionally intelligent as well. Oh he my just, goodness, yes. He just <laughs> No, I mean he's so open. There's no like, there's no like agenda or anything. He's just so open and sort of, you could see him and so like enthusiastic about everything. You just, I think if he's somebody you just love to play for. There was, I, a, there I, was a chance in the, you went to the pre-match, post-match, as you can imagine, it's not often that packed at Brentford. Absolutely packed, and everyone was late coming to the press conference. The both managers were, but there was it was the room was packed. And Christian Eriksen had been booed by a proportion, not everyone, but by a proportion of the home fans. 
and if you think about the Christian Eriksen fairy tale, it was a, there was a slight disconnect there. Should they have done that? Shouldn't they have done that? So Thomas Frank was asked, should you should your fans have been booing Christian Eriksen on his return to Brentford, where you know he was a bit of a icon briefly, and he ma- Thomas Frank managed just to illustrate Gregor's point about his emotional intelligence. He managed to tell off the fans for doing it without alienating the supporters at all. He was just saying, I don't think that's very classy. I'm not going to tell the supporters what to do. I think every returning player to this stadium should be applauded, but I'm not going to. It's not for me, not the classy thing to do. And then afterwards he said he'd be phoning him up, asking him if he's all right, how he's settling in Manchester, how his family are. Not, ha, 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 we wanted you to stay and look how it's turning out for you at Old Trafford absolutely full of class that bloke the, the only unfortunate thing is he, he, he actually asked the fans not to do that on Friday in the press conference so, they, so as much as they love him they didn't listen on that one um, but he gave them he's not te- he wouldn't dream of no, telling them no I know, I know. you're right you're absolutely right yeah but just yeah everything everything that makes Brentford so special and like is is kind of such a jarring contrast to what make Man United so miserable now uh, the, the thing I I wrote in the in on on Friday was like when was the last player I know we've said this before but how many players in the last decade have that Manchester United have signed have ever improved and like every single player that Brentford signed they improve like they flourish they develop them and now you can't like you could say Bruno in in his first uh, you know in his first period of his career but even he's drifted and like there's mm. just there's just no one now and they, I did the numbers they've they've spent 1.35 billion on players Man United in the last decade. 970 million pounds net spend and Brentford have turned a, tw- a 23 million pound profit. I'm not exaggerating, but um, Christian Eriksen, after his cardiac arrest, he said quite quickly after his cardiac arrest, my only ambition is to represent Denmark again at the World Cup. That's what I want. And Thomas Frank phoned him up and said, well, why don't you do that with us? And Brentford, the only club that made the offer, who dared to take a risk on a chat with a heart starter device. So he goes to Brentford and everyone goes, oh, my goodness. Yes, we'd forgotten just how brilliant he is at passing the ball, this vision, la, la, la. I actually think now, having seen this game, he, he might not be a starter for Denmark if he carries on playing for Manchester United. Whereas if he'd stayed with Brentford, he would be a absolute certain starter for Denmark it's like you... a vortex it's, Old Trafford's like a vortex <laughs> that talent just swirls into and withers and dies he, he will start for Denmark at the World Cup he's pretty good but oh but will he by November if he carries on yeah, with that he will carries on Talisman, carries like, on suffering the way he's, he's suffering now for them he's pretty good for them because they've had a plan under a pretty... No, no, if Damsgaard... Damsgaard didn't even get on. Right, OK, he's only just signed and he wasn't up to speed, but he didn't even get on. Imagine that Brentford team with Damsgaard in it and you're thinking, oh, you know, what formation am I going to play in a tricky game as Denmark manager? I might start with Damsgaard and not with Ericsson. OK, all right, all right. <laughs> um, I should explain why I'm sort of less angry about Manchester United than, than even the, the Chelsea game. Like, like, it's expectation. Mm. I expected, as I pointed out earlier, VAR to do something because that's what it's there to do. I don't expect anything from Manchester United. And the main reason is it is so easy for Manchester United to look around the league that they are in at all of these other clubs. They were given a lesson in 
everything that you just mentioned, Gregor, by Brighton last week, Brentford this week, to see other clubs with good structures, mm-hmm. with good recruitment, who have a plan, pick up the phone, if you really are that interested in learning how some of the best clubs in the best league in the world are turning a profit, are improving players, are scouting, all of these things, including tactics, by the way. Graham Potter last week, Thomas Frank this week. You know, Eric Ten Hag might have a great, great reputation, might have won titles where he's been in the Eredivisie. You know, he needs to get something out of this group of players and he's not going to do it this way on the on the showing of the first two weeks. Um, but I wasn't disappointed by it. I didn't expect Manchester United to get a result. I said before, and this is the reason that I don't want to go over the top with Manchester United, because I need to be fair. Everything that I could say about Manchester United now, I've said, we've said about Arsenal in the past, slated them for poor results, no, no vision, no, no, no strategy. No, 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 no. We have. We have. No, oh, we I have. I have. Right, I have. So I need to be fair. Manchester United deserve the criticism in, in all of these regards. Arsenal also went backwards for two seasons before they went forward. If you follow that pattern, you know, it's reasonable to assume that Manchester United could get worse and this might not even be their lowest point before we see any improvement from them. Thomas Clark. I'm going to take over briefly, Hugh, as host because I have quite two questions and they both apply to all of you. So I've got one question which is for Alison and then for you, Hugh, and I've got another question which is for Gregor and then for you, Hugh. The first one is on Eric Ten Hag. We're talking about Thomas Frank and his persona both on the pitch, walking those players around and in press conferences. Alison, you have absolutely torn him to shreds in your report today. I want to know how what your reading of him was because you have such a wonderful reading of personalities and people. That's why you like me so much. <laughs> what did you make of him after that game? And then Hugh, equally, what do you make as a fan of hearing him? Well, I did I did think, well, Ralph Ragnick, that's a new low in terms of lack of personality and being downbeat and not even trying to big up your players after a defeat with Manchester United. And then in comes Eric Ten Hag, who makes Ralph Ragnick look like the most dynamic personality you'll ever meet at a discotheque. So I was shocked. Shock, I was shocked by the fact he doesn't, get out of his seat he just sits and makes notes there's no encouragement to his players there's no connection with his players whatsoever he comes into the packed press room I described his answers to the myriad questions all comprised about on average six syllables he doesn't expound on anything and it's not about English not being your first language. He's got the words. He just hasn't got the desire to convey anything whatsoever. He looks so much like a man who's made the biggest mistake of his career. I can't believe for one second he's happy. And he, it, it, the, the lack of connection with the media, the supporters, the players, it's... I, I, I can't believe they've gone a step down after Ralph Ragnick. That is the amazing thing. I thought I'd seen the rock bottom in terms of lack of charisma but um, and and also I, I, I did list today and I actually ran out of room I, I listed all the mistakes he made this isn't just about United being run badly from on high and it's oh it's going to be tough for any manager who comes in he made he has been making the most abysmal mistakes he plays Ericsson as a false nine and then he plays him uh, with on a pivot with Fred both of which are positions that, that Ericsson has never played before why would you do that so, Hugh, you interview a lot of uh, managers and players. What do you make of his persona, his personality? 
well there isn't one there to be perfectly honest at this point in time he's just sort of a robotic character funny enough though the people that I'd spoken to in the Netherlands before Ten Hag was appointed and on the week he was appointed said it's a strange appointment for Manchester United because he's seen here as a massive introvert um, who only likes to do the coaching on the pitch you know highly tactical but sole focus is on the football um, great for a club like Ajax because there are so many big figures at the club who have their focus in other areas he just wants to focus on the football and doesn't want any of the noise he then walks basically jumps into the frying pan by going to Manchester United and the only thing that I'm seeing from Ten Hag so far is that he isn't a Conte character who's going to wrestle a football club going in the wrong direction and turn it around top to bottom you know some of the things that, the changes that he's making you know changing the dugouts around at the home you know at, the, at Old Trafford you know there are bigger things to worry about right now Eric to be perfectly honest yeah. um, but as a personality m- my issue with it is if he's going to be a good coach and that's his focus and that's where we want him to do his work he needs to be supported those around aren't very good at their jobs clearly one uh, and two that clear out that so many people said Manchester United needed for the last three seasons at least you know, it's we're just being reminded it does need to happen. The idea that Ten Hag was going to squeeze, you know, blood out of a stone here and suddenly turn around some of these players that have been awful for seasons into like really good players now. Please, can we all just get on board with the fact that they, Man United just need to get all these players out the door? And if that's going to take three, four seasons, which I think I've always said it's going to take a long time um, because of the size of their contracts and the fact that they played so badly, then you just have to go through that period of pain. But what, but he's not. But, but but he's not just dealing with what he's inherited. He's making what he's inherited worse. I mean, his decisions were all wrong. I, I, I didn't see any sign of someone who's come in with a tactical master plan of how to a get through the short term problems at Man United and then work towards longer term pro. What's he what's he doing playing Martinez at centre back? And I don't believe he's five foot nine, he's five foot seven. What's he what's he doing? What's he doing doing that against a team like Brentford who are very, very big? Well, exactly, which leads me beautifully. It's almost like we planned this, but we didn't. On to my next question, which is for Gregor, about Martinez. Because, Hugh, you talked about clear out and you talked about what Ten Hag wants and maybe what he didn't get. This is a player that he wanted. I want this guy. He's going to come Because everyone gonna... wants a player they've worked with. Exactly. Well, Timber was his first choice, remember? Well, true, he but he, no, still, so... he still pushed through with the idea that yeah. I want this guy to play left side of the centre, central of defence. Gregor? The central defenders shorter than six foot in the Premier League going to work. Shorter than five foot nine. <laughs> Look, there's 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 sub six foot central defenders who who've done very well in the game. Yeah, it's possible. But I mean, referring uh, back to Tony's column again this morning, I I challenged him. Obviously, he was a big guy whose whole game was based around bullying centre halves. But he said the only centre half that he ever played who was short that ever succeeded was Lota Mateus, and that's a pretty high bar. Yeah, look, look there, yeah, there's, you could talk about Baresi and Cannavaro, but it, he's neither of those players. And he's someone who's really, I think, has been a midfielder as well in yeah. his time. So but He's also very slight, which is Tony's, yeah. Tony Cascarino's other point, is that he's not big and bulky. He's a yeah. very small guy. <laughs> look, I think, I think that, that this won't be a major issue a lot of the time, most of the time, for Manchester United. Uh it shouldn't be particularly because they're going to be the team of well they should be the team who've got most of the ball and the the occasions in which um, he's like stuck underneath a lofted ball like he was when Ben Ben Mee was kind of able to just hold an arm on top of him and say like I'm going to head this I think they should be fairly rare too and you can you can use his body 
in a different way. I always found I always say, like I, I wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm a six foot one. I'm not the massive, the, the tallest for a centre half. I remember playing against Akin Femla, like never played against a bigger striker in your life. You couldn't foul him. Like it was so easy, you could climb all, to- all over him and things like that. So he he he'll do well to give away a foul if he's if he's if he's good enough at it. It it cannot be a problem if you know what I mean. <laughs> but Ivan Tony is probably one of his hardest opponents in the whole Premier League he came up against this season because he's incredible in there. Um, look, whether, only time will tell. It it can you know there have been enough bigger. examples in the past of players who have been good enough and it's not been an issue their height. And there's still been some of the but best Gregor, defenders in the world. It's too we don't late, know if it's too late for those words to mean anything because now everyone's seen what Thomas Frank's done, targeted well, uh, his lack of stature. And I, don't, I actually disagree with you. I think you can play, you can be relatively slight as a defender in a back three. In a back, in a, four at the back, you can't. You need to be a commanding, a commanding height and presence. The one I thing, think. the one thing I would say is that the mind goes back to a very similar game to this, in which was Brentford beating Arsenal on the first game of last season and the Sky, Sky Sports pundits have spending about half an hour talking about how much of an issue Ben White's going to have because he had this, exactly the same thing happen they just spent £50 million on him and it wasn't really an issue for the rest of the season so let's not go overboard I think let's give the guy a chance um, I do think Eric Ten Hag's got a huge problem um, read Paul Hurst in the Times today just talking about the fact that Man United were made to train on Sunday after that poor performance the running that they did but also uh, how Cristiano Ronaldo is cutting a bit, a bit of a um, unhappy figure shall we say and I think Eric Ten Hag as Paul alludes to is getting a bit fed up with that situation we could talk for another 10 minutes about Ronaldo I'm sure we will uh, in due course um, big game for Manchester United next up against Liverpool um, <laughs> yeah so uh, can't wait for that one by the way <laughs> Old Trafford next Monday maybe we should have a special pod just for that game anyway we'll see how it goes So you may have read a wonderful serialisation in The Times, the inside story of how Sir Alex Ferguson resigned on the eve of the now legendary 1998-99 treble season. Well, today there's even more. Uh, Check it out on The Times app. You get the story of Steve McLaren's arrival at the club as a coach and the the wall of testosterone that hit him walking in to that Old Trafford training ground. The book itself is called 1999, Manchester United, the treble and all that. It's by our very own Matt Dick who joins us now on the game podcast hi Matt morning tell me why did you decide to write this book because you're not you're not a big Manchester United fan or anything like that so so what, what got you into it well there's a few things I mean there could be the most obvious of just you know it remains the uh, obviously the most successful season by uh, uh, an English club you know Liverpool Man City have you know been chasing quadruples and fallen short which just shows how damn hard it is but I, I think it's much more than that obviously there was absolutely sort of you know unforgettable drama probably the most dramatic season ever but i think the the biggest thing which is possibly going to sound particularly poignant uh, even cruel to any man united fans listening is that i found the characters at the time absolutely fascinating it was a dressing room packed full of huge personalities as we serialized on the day one teddy sheringham and roy Keane having a massive fallout yeah there were bust ups yeah this was this was this phenomenally successful team and yet within it there was this absolutely bubbling um, mass of egos uh, hard men absolutely committed driven 
and brilliant footballers. And it just made for this incredible cocktail. And I just loved, I, I've sat, um, spoken to to most of them, to, you know, to, to Beckham, to Schmeichels, to Yorks and Cole, to Gary Neville, et cetera, Scholes, et cetera, et cetera, to talk through it. And, and uh, they, I, I think, loved reminiscing it, uh, about it as much as I did. The magnitude of those characters, um, who were the biggest that you met? Um, obviously, they're reflecting on some, some time ago now, but when you put all the stories together, who, who stood out in that changing room? Well, the, the, I mean, the interesting was just to see how sort of you know, perspectives change as well. I mean, it was, you know, Teddy Sheringham used to have a, a reputation for being you know, incredibly aloof you know, when, when we were sort of dealing with him in the time. And actually, it was really interesting to sit down with him, and he was, in, he was one of the most reflective about that aloofness was almost a sort of you know facade for actually he, he he felt he never fitted into this dressing room there was that class of 92 cabal there was Keane who he had this massive fallout with Keane didn't speak to him for three years Andy Cole didn't speak to him at all and you know it was really interesting to hear how he sort of struggled to fit you know he scored one of the most iconic famous goals in the history of Man United but he remembers it as a really tough time. He had a massive bust up with Ferguson during the season as well. So, you know, I, I just loved re- reveling and relishing the, the details again of what was going on behind the scenes. And at the same time, obviously, reliving some of the most epic matches ever ever staged. I mean, you know, obviously there was the, the, the Villa Park FA Cup replay against um, Arsenal which was, you know, possibly the most dramatic domestic match ever you know, ever played. There was, you know, Turin away with Keane. There was obviously, before we even get near the new Camp. You know, I mean, in the serialisation, I don't think David Beckham has had a mention. And yet this, of course, was the year when he started the season straight after the 98 World Cup as, you know, the villain of the entire nation. There was the, you know, the effigy, the um, sarong, and he was hated. He was absolutely loathed. And of course, by the end of the season, he's, um, you know, he's won, uh, won everyone around and won the treble. It doesn't seem like they liked each other that much, given everything that you've been saying. Like, it doesn't seem like this changing room of, of team spirit, you know, that led them towards all these trophies. Can you put your finger on why they were such a successful team then? Well, I think that's, I mean, yeah, they did obviously, you know, the class of 92 were, you know, not just teammates, but but absolutely, you know, life lifelong friends, Gary Neville and David Beckham, you know, absolutely best friends, Nicky Button, Ryan Giggs, etc. But I think, you know, just bringing those personalities to the fore shows the genius of Alex Ferguson. He, his idea of a football team was that it should reflect his personality. And obviously, we know very well that his personality is intimidating. It's, you know, physical, uh, could be bullying. Um, and he, he wanted to be aggressive and he wanted footballers who reflected that personality on the pitch. And I think, you know, he surrounded himself with them Obviously, a cost of that was that you would get clashes, but you know he had such a scale of personality that he could keep them in check. And I think that is, you know, again, it's test. I think the book is, you know, in part, it's a study of greatness. You know, I don't think anyone would dispute that word when they think of of that manager and that team. And and Ferguson's greatness was in being able to to handle, you know, these these extraordinary figures. And and you know, you can imagine Man United fans are reading it and thinking, do we do we have even one of those characters or personalities now? Never mind a, a whole team of them. Matt Dickinson, thank you very much. If you want to delve back into the heyday of Manchester United 1999 Manchester United the treble and all that is out this Thursday you can read the serializations such great insight on the Times app right now 
The city ground played host to top flight Premier League football for the first time in 23 years and it ended triumphantly with a 1-0 victory over West Ham which as you might expect involved a pretty big slice of good fortune for Forrest and the pre-match scenes were one to save but we've got to, we've got to speak to our our, our resident Nottingham Forest fan here, John Jackson, the producer of the game podcast, who was inside the ground, abandoned his mum on her birthday, no less, to make sure he was inside the ground. Disgraceful, but did you enjoy it? It wasn't a big birthday. <laughs> I did enjoy it. Yeah, no, I, I was. I took her for brunch. Can I just defend myself? I took her for brunch and I said, look, if I do a tweet while you go and order and someone happens to have a ticket... Is that all right? Is it acceptable that you go to the garden centre alone? And she said yes. So I put out a tweet and I checked the DMs after the brunch. And, you know, a former Nottingham Forest player had DM'd me and left me a ticket on reception. We all name, name no names, but he was a very good left winger. Did you play with Gregor? <laughs> <laughs> was he on the bench? <laughs> well, who knows? Uh, anyway, so, uh, yes, it was it was fantastic. Obviously, the atmosphere was ridiculous. They did plan, the Forest uh, supporters group do sort of plan these big sort of gestures with banners and things like that and something went wrong like things didn't turn up but they still managed to provide a lot of fans to people and being sitting in that searing heat yesterday it was actually quite uh, welcome that there was fans but yeah in terms of the atmosphere there I mean you've got kids who've never seen Nottingham Forest play in the Premier League so obviously that's very special fathers mothers grandfathers grandparents whatever you know being able to take these kids and not only get enjoyment themselves from seeing Forest back in the Premier League but also you know the joy you can see on their faces yeah. as they're taking kids it was it was very nice atmosphere yeah ridiculous all the way through Good. Just, you know, constant singing. But that always happens at the city ground. I know, I know. I know it's an excellent place for atmosphere. I wondered whether it surpassed what it's usually like because it was such a game of magnitude. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess so. I think it was, there, was, there was a lot more consistent... You know, there, was, there was just that feeling of unease because obviously being so close to winning your first Premier League game at home in 23 years we are unbeaten by the way at home in the Premier League in 23 years <laughs> just saying and <laughs> uh, yeah I think there was just that, that weird anticipation made everyone a bit more on edge so there was a lot there was a lot more shouting and berating of of players and uh, Ben Rama who was uh, very keen to tell everyone to be quiet when he scored the goal that then got chalked off so yeah, yeah. yeah well I'm glad you enjoyed it John thank you for joining us on the podcast should speak to our resident Nottingham Forest ex-player no <laughs> less surely the fee's gone up mate they're a premier <laughs> they're a premier league club now um taiwo at uh, one year's uh, goal uh, very fortunate um do you think it was a deserved victory for Forrest? As I said, there was a fair bit of luck in there, including a Declan Rice missed penalty, Ben Rama yeah. hitting the underside of the crossbar. But for this was the performance of the weekend, genuinely, that made me feel worse about Manchester United. Because I was like, if a championship side who have bought 15 players now under Steve Cooper can have... Granted, you know there is a there is a probably a golfing class between them and West Ham United individually, but be so competitive in a game against a team that qualified for Europe last year, and Man United a four 0 down at half time to Brentford. I was a bit like, look, there's serious issues at United, but all credit to Forrest. Absolutely, it's kind of as as the number of players they're bringing in just uh, ratchets up every few days. It's <laughs> I don't know, but my only my my only unease is is just knowing about the owner and and slightly worried that people have got 
a bit of amnesia about what happened before, prior to the 12 months that was a bit of a miracle and they got promoted. He's just addicted to signing players. And look, I understand the argument that everyone is, is making quite forcefully about Forrest needing to do this because they shipped out six loans, they released, I think they released some like 12 players overall. Um, I understand they need to do it, but it's a huge job to kind of knit this together and keep some semblance of the the kind of unity and team spirit and, you know, I don't know, just plain old happiness for the players who helped them get promoted. And, um, yeah, it's going to be some task, but the early signs were good. And some of the, some of the early signs from the signings too have, were very good. Lewis O'Brien was outstanding. Um, so much energy. He's just got a bit of everything. He can drive forward with the ball. He's really good, kind of positionally intelligent, Loves a tackle. He's got a bit of everything. I thought he was excellent. Harry Toffolo, who Tom Tom will know very well from his time at Lincoln. Uh, they also signed from Huddersfield. Brilliant, particularly in the build-up to the goal. Um, uh, you know, there, there's some positive signs. I thought Alanini was was a menace. He, mm. he looked kind of a bit like he, he maybe not going to put every chance that falls his way away. Um, but he looked a real menace, and I thought. Um, Nico Williams at right back as well on the ball in particular was a real kind of attacking uh, attacking force I'm not entirely convinced about him defensively yet but certainly hugely positive just just to kind of get that monkey off their back and to to kind of have lift off in the Premier League massive day for Forrest I think Greg has, Greg has said it before several times on the podcast but it comes back to Steve Cooper doesn't it and this kind of potential culture clash with the owner because the three players that Greg has just highlighted there they're Steve Cooper players they're young hungry players that have grown in the game and they're being given a chance under a manager who gets a lot out of uh, young English talent this seems to be his background in coaching the, then when you see rumours about signing Uwa from the Liga from Lyon and you're thinking oh, is that is that a bit of a celebrity superstar signing is that what they need you know how's he going to work alongside Lewis O'Brien that's where the kind of clash might come in the final weeks of the window where they move from signing these players that are very much going to fit in with what Steve Cooper wants to do and then maybe signing some box office superstar names that might not work look he's, he's outward facingly at least he's he seems to be on board with it you know I think he he's happy to get the the support um, and I should, as I say in the last 12 months they made big changes behind the scenes in terms of bringing Dane Murphy from from uh, Barnsley as CEO, sort of improving the recruitment structure, which is a you know, and getting some good data analysis involved and things like that. So I think we've got to give them benefit of the doubt. Uh, it is a huge. It's going to be a huge challenge to knit the, knit the squad together now, uh, and there's going to be a lot of unhappy players. And one of his biggest strengths actually last season was, you know, there was, there was Forrest had hoarded players for years, and he managed to kind of keep even people who are on the periphery and the fringes you keep them happy and keep them invested so if you can do it again I mean it's some job yeah yeah it will be some job um, good to see Nottingham Forest off the mark in front of their home fans I haven't got any real concerns for West Ham United I think they could have easily scored in this game you know great to see VAR chalking off a goal by the way for two players running into each other why would you want to get involved when someone you know pulls someone's hair when you can disallow goals for that you know that's what it's all about hey eh? uh, with the old VAR anyway I'm not going to dwell on it too much hopefully West Ham get off the mark uh, very very soon as well before we leave you please do read an article on the Times app right now. Jonathan Northcroft 
just a great dissection of assists. How's football become too obsessed with assists? But it goes back to the origin of it, why we even discuss it, the importance of it. And we might as well do the same here on the game podcast. Alison, I'll start with you. What do you what do you think about maybe your favourite assists, but also the importance of assists in the game? Do we maybe dwell on them a little bit too much? Oh, I love, I've, I've always been uh, in love with assists. And my favourite player of all time was the king of the pre-assist. Yari Lipmanen. So yes, I I, uh, I love I love an assist. In fact, one of the best show reels you'll ever watch isn't a show reel of goals. It's a show reel of Michael Laudrup's assists, where he would squirm the ball through the eye of a needle to reach the player he knew was going to run from out of the picture. So I I probably would rather spend an hour watching assists than goals. Uh, that is the truth. I'm not just saying it because we're discussing assists. I absolutely adore assists. I tested it out on my son. I said. Do you know what your favourite assist is? And he knew straight away. And I wonder how many fans out there would know straight away. His favourite assist is Cesc Fabregas to Schürrle, um when uh, it's second coming of Mourinho, so around 2015, first game of the season, and they won the title. Yeah, against Burnley. So all, yes. Against Burnley. It's all context. It's all context, isn't it? But the fact that he knew without missing a heartbeat what his favourite assist was, was... And also, he knew what my favourite assist was. We're such a lovely, close-knit family. <laughs> so and my favourite assist is my first ever trip to Anfield, uh, the 7-0 against Spurs, the seventh goal. The ball, there's a rare Spurs corner. The ball comes out of defence through Kenny Dalglish. The ball goes to the left wing. And right in front of me, Stevie Highway collects the ball and doesn't stop running in doing so and keeps running and crosses the ball without needing to look at Terry McDermott, who's made the run the full length of the pitch to just head it in. And that, to me, was sort of cemented my absolute adoration of A, football, B, Liverpool, and C, assists. I thought you would have gone, oh, one of my favourites, um, Xavier Alonso's the left-footed hook to Luis Garcia against Sunderland over the shoulder. Please tell me you remember that. If you if you don't, check it out on YouTube. Unbelievable. Well, he was another king of the assist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tom, what do you think? Oh, so many, so many suggestions. And I think as Alison's uh, point with her son rightly proves, everyone has their favourite assists. I, I, I mean, arguably quicker than goals. I mean, I sent the message out on Twitter and to some of my friends and the responses were immediate, instantaneous. Uh, lots of suggestions for a player that I know Gregory's going to mention, so I'll leave that one out. Listener Stephen Adams agreed with uh, Alison's son that Fabregas against Burnley, which, if you've not seen it, is absolutely beautiful. Fakes to shoot, kind of cushions a little volley into Schirler's path. Superb. Lots of suggestions for David Silva uh, knocking it up on the volley and then hitting it straight through to Edin Dzeko against Manchester United in that mauling you, I mean you could let's be honest there's probably about 15 for David Silva that you could have <laughs> Paul Scholes similarly um, for me and for my brother um, against Milan for Manchester United flicking the ball over the defence in kind of one movement for Wayne Rooney to bound through and score uh, Cyril suggests uh, Rooney to Van Persie obviously for that wonderful volley um, Dave picks David Beckham to Ronaldo for Real Madrid it, Obviously, that combination would have happened lots of times. But if you look, oh, that's, it up, that's my fave. But the fizzed cross, the curl that the just curl that just like evades drifts, the defender's head, and Ronaldo hits it on around. the volley. Oh, absolutely beautiful! Beautiful. But I'm going to. Um, my friend James suggested this one, and I agree with him because it kind of combines something else about football that I love, which is a tackle. Wayne Rooney for DC United when he sprints back. Yeah, he's the only man. One. He sprints back about <laughs> half the length of the pitch. Snaps a player. Yeah, gets up. Yeah absolutely cuts a guy in half um, <laughs> gets up knocks it out of his feet 
and it's the way that he kind of hoofs it in a way that you know we all hoof the ball just to kind of clear it but a Wayne Rooney hoof essentially ends up as the most precise and perfect cross for a guy to attack it and head it in absolutely <laughs> superb yeah there are loads of good ones um, and you named a couple there um, there was a specialist in assists that a lot of football fans love as well Gregor Gooty specialist with his heel as well (laughs) (laughs) I mean yeah I just kind of had a really nice half an hour earlier just watching some of his um, his his most famous is is the is the back heel for for Benzema against Deportivo La Coruña in in, uh, 2009-10 and it's like when he's clean through on on goal he's in the penalty box there's no one in front of him except the goalkeeper everyone's shooting and he back heels at a slight angle as well which you know, just leaves everyone flummoxed and Benzema just taps it into an empty net it's just absolutely magnificent and he of course did something similar for Zinedine Zidane although it was I mean you it say was, similar it, it, I had no seen it wasn't you know, it was similar in that it was an assist with his back heel yeah. but it was bizarre because he's, he's kind of 25 yards out mm. facing away from the opponent's goal and but somehow knows that Zidane is making a run into the box as the Sevilla, I think as the Sevilla defenders are coming out and he threads a ball <laughs> in between the defence, splits the defence with a back heel for Zidane to score. Uh, it was just, that was more like jarring, but I don't know actually, which one's better? Which one do you think's better? I think the second one's better because think it, that is a, that is you know when you hit a button when you're playing like Pro Evo or FIFA yeah. and they're not looking the right way the player it's the wrong but ob- button but obviously, the wrong button but obviously, <laughs> but obviously you can see everything right because you're watching the full pitch and they make a pass and you think no player would could ever do that because yeah. they haven't got eyes in the back of their head Gooty does that yeah. like he's got eyes in the back of his head like it's incredible it is. The but, sec- but no one doesn't shoot when they're actually one on one with the goalkeeper yeah, as well no one unnecess- does that either it's the unnecessary yeah. nature of the although of he's the what, already was interviewed uh, for the Benzema and he said I didn't do it for aesthetic reasons I mean I'm not sure how much I believe this but he was like I, didn't, was, I just it, think about the practical I'm a pragmatist on the pitch he said I thought what's the easiest way to guarantee a goal yeah. I'm not sure that's true because it's, on, it's on his right foot that's the only way that's that true, like, yeah. he just yeah. doesn't fancy yeah. shooting with his right but, the one, th- the one thing we should say about Johnny's piece, which is a joyous piece, and it, you can tell he really enjoyed, as he said, going down some rabbit holes on YouTube. But the thing, the the line he opens with at the start, kind of sums up the problem with assists, which is he he cites Maradona's goal, uh, famous goal against England in, in the '86 World Cup, and no one ever knows who got the assist for that. But Henry <laughs> Hector Enrique, who it was, says as a gag, which is with a pass like that, you could hardly miss. <laughs> so. <laughs> Obviously, it's a little sideways pass in his own half. He would have got a assist for that. So there is some kind of issue with the metric now and everything is so, you know, stats driven. We have key passes as a metric now. And I think key passes... We have expected assists as well. Oh, really? Expected assists. We have second assists as well. Yeah. The pass before the pass is very important too. Coming next week on the game podcast, your favourite pass before the pass. (laughs) There'll be some good ones too. There'll be some good ones too. Anyway, thank you all. Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark for being with me for the past hour or so uh, and all of you for listening too we will be back on Thursday plenty more to discuss I am sure um, particularly when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo he might be out the door by then Aubameyang might be in at Chelsea who knows what else we'll see you then but in the meantime make sure you're subscribed both to the podcast and to the Times app download it wherever you uh, get your apps from uh, you can check it out online as well thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you soon